reality is that one big industry that Australia has depended on historically for employment is going to decline and then disappear. Ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts and get ready for a journey into the superpower future. Today on The Second Renaissance, we have the honor of introducing a visionary and futurist economist who's been mapping out the sustainable future of our world for years, Dr. Ross Garneau. With a keen eye for economic sustainability and the environment, Dr. Garneau's thoughts and insights are a window into a better and more sustainable tomorrow. He's been shaping the discourse on how we can create a world that is not just economically prosperous, but also environmentally conscious for the last 20 years. In today's episode, we sit down to decode his latest books, Superpower and Superpower Transformation, and the latest exponential potential for Australia in the decarbonized future. It's an energizing conversation with a climate optimist, but also a sobering wake-up call for immediate climate action. Now, a few words on pedigree. Ross Garneau, AO, is one of Australia's leading economists and thinkers. He's a professorial fellow in economics and a vice chancellor's fellow at the University of Melbourne, as well as a distinguished professor of the Australian National University. In September 2008, Professor Garneau presented the Garneau Climate Change Review to the Australian Prime Minister. He was a key economic advisor to the reforming Hawke government, and Garneau has held senior roles in government and business, including as Australian ambassador to China and climate change advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments. So hold on tight as we explore the exciting possibilities of the electrifying future with none other than one of my climate superheroes, Dr. Ross Garneau, here on the Second Renaissance podcast. Ross Garneau, welcome to the Second Renaissance and great to see you again. Great to see you, Anders, again after meeting in the the coal past and... uh, uh, renewable energy f- future region of uh, central Queensland. Yeah, that's right. We spent some time together last year with the RCOE or the Resources Centre of Excellence up in uh, Mackay talking about this big superpower transformation that we'll be talking about at the Second Renaissance uh, today, Ross. And uh, that might actually lead me to one of the uh, the first questions uh, that's been on my mind, which is uh, when we were working in central Queensland, in very, very traditional coal mining communities and fossil fuel-based economies. I mean, how do you sell this idea or this innovation of the renewable future? And how does it go down in, in coal mining communities when, when you speak about the very, very different future uh, compared to what you might call the dog days? Well, I'm never uh, selling this vision and as I'm just talking about a reality and helping to explain a, uh, a reality, and that reality is that uh, uh, one big industry that uh, that region, more than any other in Australia, has depended on historically for employment and incomes is going to decline and then disappear. Uh, the, the coal industry, uh, coal's been a great part of Central Queensland's past, a great part of Australia's past, a great part of the world's past. We would not have had 
the, the huge beneficial transformation of the Industrial Revolution without coal, but it's done its job. Uh, and uh, we're now aware that if it continues as it uh, as it was in the past, we will destabilize the climate on which uh, every, all of our civilization depends. In fact, we started to do that, and we're seeing great damage from that. Central Queensland's seeing great damage from that. Uh, uh, along that uh, beautiful coast, a lot of the horticultural industries, uh, nurseries wiped out uh, in a couple of uh, cyclonic events uh, with floods uh, over the last few years. Uh, that's been great, but it's the past, and uh, it just happens that uh, the future is going to draw on other resources that that region has. Uh, and uh, uh, the region that I describe in my book, The Superpower Transformation, as uh, the rhombus of reliability, a, a, a rhombus-shaped area from Gladstone in the south on the coast of Queensland, central Queensland, to uh, Townsville in north Queensland, going inland over uh, what Australians call the Great Dividing Range into the flat, uh, sunlit country beyond that. Uh, within that region, you've got extraordinarily renewable energy resources. Uh, you have to go west of the mountains to get... Uh, the, the perfect sunshine and to avoid the cyclones disrupting solar farms. Uh, in the mountains, you've got wonderful country for wind power. You've got extraordinary opportunities for pumped hydro storage, for storing renewable energy. And, and along the coast and in the mountains, you've got um, uh, some of the world's richest uh, um, horticultural resources, uh, uh, a source of biomass, which is very valuable as a source of zero emissions industrial inputs in the uh, in the emerging zero emissions world economy. So it just happens that that region's been very successful in the past, built on the old sources of energy, and uh, if we don't muck it up, we'll be very successful in future uh, based on the new source of energy. When uh, so, uh, I haven't seen my job as selling anything, just analysing the reality and uh, explaining that. And I find that uh, yes, there are mixed responses. Uh, naturally, there's anxiety, especially in the early days of talking about these changes. Anxiety amongst people who know how much they've depended on the old resources. But increasingly, there's realisation that that the new opportunities are very large. And the sooner that these communities uh, get on board, uh, the the uh, easier the transition will be. So there's actually a, a positive, not universal, but generally positive view uh, of uh, uh, moving from the successful past uh, to uh, a, a different successful future. So this is something that, that strikes me. Obviously, uh, Australia's uh, economy partly buoyed by the rise of China over the last 30-odd years. And I, I know you have a past as the Australian uh, ambassador to, to China in the late 80s, I believe. Uh, but Australia, in, in some ways, you know, people have said, became China's quarry and, and certainly helped us avoid a recession for, for many, many years based upon some of our you know, old school fossil fuel uh, resources. But the, the future is about renewable resources and renewable energy. And um, this is what leads to both of these fantastic books. 
that I've had an opportunity to 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 sit down and, and, and digest over the little last little while during the summer holidays. Um, but in the book, and I'm, I'm keen for a clarification in the book, the superpower transformation that has come out come out since the Australian election of 2022. Uh, you're talking about these endowments and these opportunities that Australia has that are quite unique, and you've just begun to explore some of those. But what you're saying in the book is that Australia can supply zero emissions goods and services that directly reduce global emissions by around 8%, which is much more than Europe, including the UK, achieving zero net emissions, or more than twice Japan, or more than India doing so. Can you just explore this with us and, and how Australia has this outsized opportunity, not just to become a superpower in a, in and of itself in a decarbonized future, but also just the global impact of Australia doing so? Yes, uh, Anders. Uh, well, the opportunity and uh, the responsibility of, uh, uh, associated with, the, with these resources is built on five kinds of advantages. Uh, first, the world's richest combinations of solar and wind resources. Uh, uh, where we were in Queensland, near the Tropic of Capricorn, uh, follow that line to the west, and that's just about the best solar country in the world. Uh, go further north and you get more cloud in the tropical areas. Uh, uh, go further south and, and, and you get uh, uh, more, more, more cloud and uh, also uneven uh, sunlight hours between summer and winter, but that's that's a real sweet spot across that Tropic of Capricorn. Very good through much of Australia. When I did my f big review on climate change for all the government, state and federal of Australia back in 2007, 2008, I was visited by the director of the German solar program and uh, he'd done his homework and and with some regret, he shared with me the feelings he'd had when he realised that the very worst places for solar energy in uh, Australia, the west coast of Tasmania, are better than the best in, in Germany. But uh, you've got a real sweet spot near the Tropic of Capricorn. And wind resources are, uh, are, are excellent in many places. And the combination of excellent solar and excellent wind uh, brings down the cost of supplying renewable energy, means you need less storage to keep uh, uh, servicing industries using renewable energy, uh, so that's the that's the first resource. It's a, it's actually not only the quality of the resources which are very high, but uh, the space to put them in. Even if Germany or Japan or central or coastal uh, China or Korea had wind and solar resources as good as Australia's, and they don't, but even if they did. Where would you put hundreds of square kilometres of, uh, of solar uh, panels in any of those countries or regions? Uh, uh, but Australia uh, has, uh, uh, has the space uh, to deploy them. Wind takes up less land, but, um, uh, but it, it does affect uh, other things that are going on on the land. And, and again, uh, Australia's uh, wide open spaces, the low ratios of population to uh, land area give it a special advantage. So the first big asset of Australia in the New World is the, the unusual, the exceptional combinations of high quality wind and solar resources. The, the second 
is that Australia happens to have, uh, more than any other country, uh, an abundance of the the mineral resources uh, uh, that are necessary to build the machines of the zero-emissions world economy. The building of all the solar panels, the wind turbines, the batteries, the transmission lines, the electric cars that we need to remove uh, uh, emissions uh, requires very large quantities of minerals that have been in some demand in the past, but small demand. Uh, And... uh, the International Energy Agency has estimated there'll need to be a 700% increase in the volume of production of a wide range of what it calls critical minerals. Uh, I prefer to call them and use in the book, uh, The Superpower Transformation, use the term uh, uh, energy transition minerals. Some uh, that were in large demand in the old economy, but much larger in the new, like copper and cobalt and nickel. And others that were in relatively small demand in the old economy and huge in the new. Silicon, the main active uh, component in um, in the uh, uh, photovoltaic panel, uh, graphite uh, for batteries, um, uh, rare earths, uh, uh, um, special minerals like um, titanium, uh, uh, vanadium. Uh, and uh, it just happens that Australia is the first or the second or the third uh, largest uh, uh, source of or potential source of uh, these energy transition minerals. That's the second uh, advantage. The third is that there are certain minerals that are required in huge quantities in the world economy, old and new, uh, that require very large amounts of energy for transformation of the mineral into usable metals. The biggest of these is is iron. About 7% of global emissions is, uh, uh, is derived simply from transforming iron ore, iron oxide, into iron metal. Uh, but aluminium is another one. Uh, you need huge amounts of uh, uh, of electricity to convert uh, uh, aluminium oxide, the ore, into aluminium metal. Uh, one that's going to be hugely important in the zero emissions world economy is silicon uh, for for making the photo, photovoltaic panels, also for, um, panels, but also the uh, the chips in the computers, uh, the mobile phones that are becoming more and more important, hugely important in the electric car. Uh, so. Uh, uh, silicon it requires even more energy compared with value uh, than aluminium does, uh, and it's going to be a huge industry. Uh, so the countries that have large amounts of uh, uh, of energy for processing are going to have special advantages uh, if they've also uh, if they've also got um, the, the energy transition minerals uh, requiring a lot of energy for for uh, processing and other minerals like iron. Now, Australia also has an advantage in iron making, one might think, in the old economy because we've also got the world's best metallurgical coal resources. We're a huge exporter of metallurgical coal uh, to uh, China, Japan, Korea, some to Europe. Why isn't that used in Australia now? Well, it doesn't cost much to uh, ship metallurgical coal from Mackay, where we were together uh, last year, uh, to uh, the great steelmaking centres of uh, China, Japan, 
Korea, Germany. But uh, it's different for the uh, for renewable energy. You can shift uh, a, a renewable energy and renewable electricity between continents with electric cables. This will happen, and, and there's a very big project uh, that will supply a substantial part of Singapore's uh, uh, requirements by uh, transmission cable under the water from northern Australia to Singapore across Indonesian waters. That can be done, but it's very expensive, and the power will be more than twice as expensive at the other end as it is in Australia. Uh, you can turn the renewable energy into hydrogen, and hydrogen is the, made from renewable energy is the zero emissions route uh, for transforming iron ore into uh, iron metal. Uh, you could take Australian um, hydrogen made from renewable energy and uh, take it to China or Japan or Korea or Germany and, and make it there. But unlike metallurgical coal, the, tra the, the transportation costs are very high compared with the value of the material. It's going to cost much more than twice as much to use Australian hydrogen in those countries or Australian renewable electricity uh, as it is to use it in Australia. Uh, the, the differential's tiny for metallurgical coal. In fact, it's cheaper to, to transport metallurgical coal from Mackay in Queensland to uh, Japan or China or Korea than to take it to uh, the steelworks in Wyala in South Australia. Uh, so there'll be huge economic pressures to do the processing uh, in Australia. And Australia happens to be the world's main source of uh, those minerals that require a lot of energy for processing. Australia is by far the world's biggest exporter of uh, uh, of iron ore. Uh, China produces more than half the world's steel uh, and 60% uh, of the imports of iron ore for that come from uh, Australia. Australia is the natural location for processing uh, with zero emissions. Uh, uh, iron ore, uh, aluminium ore, silicon oxide, other uh, 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 minerals into uh, products for, uh, uh, for, for global markets. Uh, the, the fourth big advantage is that in the zero emissions world economy, uh, growing biomass has great economic value. And uh, we think of Australia, and Australia is uh, a relatively dry continent, the driest of the inhabited continents. Um, and so uh, naturally, uh, uh, less biomass grows per hectare, but, but there are a lot of hectares and not many people. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, at present, woodlands in Australia uh, are, are, ten, um, are present in 10 times the quantity compared with population uh, as they are in the developed world as a whole. And the developed world has much more uh, land for biomass than developing uh, countries. So that's another advantage in two ways. There's one old technology that's been proven uh, for co taking carbon from the atmosphere and uh, capturing it securely uh, uh, on Earth, and uh, that's that's a, a technology that's got a proven track record of over a billion years. It's called photosynthesis. Uh, that's lots of talk is uh, is going on around uh, mechanical means of cap capturing carbon dioxide and uh, bring it down to Earth, and then securing it, storing it in uh, 
geological structures. Well, some of that might happen, but we've, that's not proven technology. There's one proven one, photosynthesis, and Australia's in a uniquely favourable position to do that on a large scale, um, uh, either for capturing uh, uh, carbon and storing it in the ground, a source of negative emissions, uh, or for sustainably growing biomass, uh, growing trees in, on a sustainable basis, uh, harvesting it, um, uh, using uh, the uh, biomass as a zero emission source of hydrocarbons and carbon for industry uh, to replace the oil and coal and gas that's currently used in industry. We'll replace a lot of the coal and oil that's used in industry by uh, synthetic uh, chemicals made from hydrogen and electricity and uh, uh, and other materials that have zero emissions, but there'll be a core of uh, industrial products that where it's very difficult to replace carbon and hydrocarbon, and the zero emissions way of producing those in future is going to be using biomass, and Australia's got big advantages in that. And the fifth advantage. It's Australia now, certainly per head of population, relative to the size of the population, it's got by far the world's biggest agglomeration of um, skills and uh, management capacities related to uh, mining, metallurgy, agriculture, forestry, uh, um, and uh, these skills, and also the physical infrastructure in, in the mining, uh, agricultural and uh, forestry industries, uh, provide a very strong start for the industries of the zero emission future. We'll see that at the uh, place that we were at in Mackay, where uh, the Centre of Excellence for Resources was built around uh, uh, innovation and training uh, for the uh, the old resource industries, especially coal. But uh, those same skills, those same capacities for innovation are going to be crucial for the zero emissions industries of the future, the new resource industries of the future. And a lot of the infrastructure, the transmission lines, the ports, uh, will be uh, given new value, uh, longer life uh, through use for producing the essential products of the zero um, emissions economy. So so this inheritance of uh, skills and infrastructure from uh, from the old resources industries provides a very good start for for the new resources industry. So they're the five advantages. Put them together. No one else got anything like them. Uh, and uh, uh, use that opportunity well. It will be much cheaper for uh, the densely populated uh, countries of Northeast Asia, uh, China, Japan, Korea, and Europe. Uh, be much cheaper for them to import semi-processed materials embodying uh, Australian renewable energy, and it will be for them to uh, use their own uh, more expensive uh, solar and wind resources to, uh, to uh, make zero emissions industries. And that's where my figure uh, 8% comes from. Australia plays a very big role now in supplying fossil uh, energy and fossil uh, reductants uh, uh, to uh, uh, the economies of Northeast Asia, uh, China, Japan, Korea. And uh, that 8% is based on a presumption that we can get the same share of uh, uh, Northeast Asian uh, uh, markets uh, for renewable energy as we get for uh, coal and uh, and gas now. And uh, it's presumed on, well, that, that's the presumption about Korea and, uh, and Japan, and uh, it presumes a... 
uh, a relatively low proportion of the markets of uh, China and Europe. Uh, so the 8% is a little bit conservative. But even on that basis, Australia um, plays a crucial role uh, in uh, allowing decarbonisation to work in Europe and in Northeast Asia. So hearing about those abundant endowments in Australia, the, the, the question that emerges in my mind is why, firstly, why on earth have we not seized this opportunity uh, in an enthusiastic fashion up until very, very recently? And if it is now a paradigm shift or a shift in the zeitgeist, what's led to that shift? Our economy at the moment is dominated proportionally more than any other developed countries by the old fossil energy industries, uh, coal and gas. Uh, uh, the, these industries uh, represent a very high proportion of the, uh, the value of stocks on the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, they're, they're in an industry that depends on government regulation. Under the Australian Constitution, all of those resources, all of the coal and the iron ore, uh, belongs to the, to the state. Uh, and then the state leases uh, access to them uh, to private uh, uh, miners. In principle, all the rent value could, some would say should, go to uh, the, the, the people who own it, the people of Australia, but that's not the way we've... Uh, We've run things, and uh, uh, the the fossil energy industries are deeply involved in politics. Their business starts with politics. Their business starts with getting exclusive rights to mined ore deposits. Uh, 150 years ago, we did things in a different way. 170 years ago, uh, we had the great gold fields of Victoria and New South Wales. We had gold rushes, and anyone could come in and peg a little claim, a few square metres, and start digging, and... Some would do well, some wouldn't, and European and Chinese settlers came to Australia in very large numbers in the first place. Australia was populated from the gold rush. We don't do it like that, that now. Uh, we give a single company exclusive rights. We make it illegal for anyone else to come and have an iron ore rush. Uh, we give an exclusive right to uh, mine iron ore in Western Australia to four or five very big companies, and we... It's illegal for anyone else to go and peg a claim and dig a bit of iron ore and send it off to Japan. Uh, uh, and so uh, the business of the resource industries is built around relations with government. They've been very good and very successful, very effective in investing in politics to avoid uh, uh, the, the community getting much uh, in the way of uh, taxation and uh, um, royalties uh, out of those industries. Australia has been a bit different, for example, uh, from Norway, where the, the state did collect most of the rents, and as a result, uh, uh, the state's been in a very strong position to invest in the energy transition. But uh, we've done it differently, and that different history means a different politics. And so those old vested interests uh, have been very powerful in shaping the political conversation and shaping policy. Uh, and... Uh, uh, old established industries get a vote and can contribute to uh, political parties. Uh, new industries don't uh, because they don't exist yet. Uh, uh, and uh, employees of the coal industry get a vote now because 
because they, they know who they are, but employees in the new industries don't know who they are and don't know who they're going to be. Uh, so uh, in any political system, uh, the, the past gets a vote, the future doesn't. That's one thing. And in the Australian political economy, uh, the, the old resource industries have been particularly effective in resisting change. Resisting in a whole lot of ways, part of the resistance comes from disinformation, uh, colouring the discourse, uh, raising doubts about whether climate change is a problem or whether anything serious can be done about it. Now you ask why is that changing now? It, it's changing because the reality of climate change is pressing itself upon Australia as it's pressing itself upon the world. Uh, 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 Ten years ago, 12 years ago, uh, there was still quite a lot of people who thought that climate science was crap, that that atmospheric physics uh, taught in the universities was, was wrong, uh, there was no basis for it. And today, it's only the fringe, the, uh, 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 a relatively unimportant uh, politically uh, fringe of the population that thinks physics is, is rubbish. Uh, uh, bec and the, what's changed that more than anything else is actually being able to see the effects of climate change uh, on uh, bushfires, um, heat waves, more variable rainfall, uh, more cyclonic events, more flooding events. Uh, 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 we can see the damage. Um, a second uh, reason why things have changed is that uh, uh, the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world in particular, has gone more rapidly than Australia. Uh, on addressing these issues, and 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 as the rest of the world adjusts, uh, then they're making it clear they're not prepared to uh, allow business as usual in countries that continue to depend on fossil fuels. And uh, the influence from abroad comes in many ways, partly uh, geopolitical. Close ally, the United States, is now under administration of President Biden that takes this issue very seriously. And when we had a government led by uh, Prime Minister Morrison that wasn't taking the issue seriously, this became a contentious issue in our relations with the United States. Uh, uh, in, in Europe, it's become clear that if Australia is to get a satisfactory free trade agreement, uh, it has to take account of European concerns and priorities for dealing with climate change. Along with that negative geopolitical pressure, uh, comes um, uh, opportunities. Europe from 2026 uh, will will place a tax on uh, uh, imports that contain carbon unless that carbon uh, has been taxed in the country of origin. Uh, and so we're finding that many Australian industries are seeking ways of reducing emissions to avoid that European tax. Uh, for many products, for example, many of our farm products, the world's highest price markets are in Europe. If you want access to those markets, you're going to have to uh, either point to a zero emission supply chain or, uh, chain or, uh, or pay a tax on entry uh, to Europe. And that concentrates the mind. And so a lot of industries that a few years ago weren't taking this issue very seriously are realising they've got to move. In addition, Australia is uh, deeply integrated into world um, financial markets. A lot of our equity for investment comes from abroad. A lot of debt for investment comes from abroad. And uh, a lot of the main institutions that are the sources of finance are making it clear they're not prepared to support investment 
uh, in the old high carbon uh, industries, not support, not prepared to support investment in countries that aren't taking climate change seriously. So that is forcing change. So, so there are both po- positive and negative reasons. Uh, I think that the thing that will really push Australia on very rapidly is the positive uh, reason, the recognition that as the rest of the world changes, there's a huge opportunity to use Australian resources to help those other countries uh, move more quickly to zero emissions and and create uh, employment and incomes in Australia at the same time. So both uh, carrot and uh, stick approach here potentially, access to, to lucrative markets and uh, ensuring we still are able to, to supply our resources, our, uh, our outputs from manufacturing. And I'm also hearing the opportunity for actually onshoring um, you know, refinement and, 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 and processing capabilities back to Australia and maybe the, the sort of lost opportunities of, of the past where uh, some of our resources have just being part of a quarry and then put on a ship yeah. uh, to China or elsewhere, whereas some of the capabilities, uh, particularly in a renewable future, should be you know nationalized and localized much closer to, to, to some of yeah. the sources of, of renewable power, for example. Um, what are the, you know, We've heard about the climate upside here. If we're, you know, climate optimists and, and, and we believe in a, you know, superpower transformation, um, why is Australia, you know, just as it has this opportunity to participate and, and, and drive a decarbonized future, what are the downside risks and why are they outsized in Australia compared to other regions or other nations? Um, I guess I'm I'm looking at both sides of the fence here, and the fact that they, yes, that there is a massive upside. But similarly, if we don't mitigate, uh, Australia seems to be one of the most fragile, most vulnerable uh, economies and, and and countries in the developed world. Uh, if climate change is unleashed in 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 a, in a massive way, and when we have you know above two degrees of warming, etc. Well, Australia is the most vulnerable of the developed countries. Uh, and uh, I, I went through uh, the explanation of that in my big review for the federal and state governments um, uh, given to the heads of government uh, back in 2008, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, we're, we're the most vulnerable country for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, we're already a hot and dry country and so uh, make it hotter and you take a lot of human activities into uh, uncharted uh, climate country. Uh, if if it gets a bit warmer in uh, in Russia, you can start to uh, apply the uh, agricultural technologies that they use in Germany or England. Get a bit warmer in England, and you can start to apply some of the technologies they use in Australia. But uh, Australia's got to invent something completely new if it gets hotter in Australia. And we've got by far the world's most uh, variable rainfall as well as uh, uh, the lowest average rainfall of the inhabited continents. Uh, And so uh, uh, even if average rainfall doesn't change, increased variability increases vulnerability when you're already at the margin of... uh, 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 of availability of water in large parts of the country. Uh, so uh, we're vulnerable in that sense. One point that I emphasized in in uh, my, my major reports 15 years ago 
is that uh, Australia is the only developed country that lives mainly in a region of developing countries. All of our neighbours are developing countries, and developing countries, especially poorer developing countries, uh, poor and low and middle income developing countries, uh, will find it very difficult to adapt to climate change. Uh, uh, a rich country, uh, or the Netherlands, used to is used to uh, uh, um, keeping out the seas, but building sea walls and dikes, uh, and uh, in future we'll see a lot more of that. Uh, and uh, a rich country can do that, but a, a, a poor country will have great difficulty in doing that. And so displacement of people uh, will be much more important in the densely populated regions of Southeast and, uh, and South Asia uh, than uh, in the developed countries. And uh, Australia is the only developed country adjacent uh, uh, to, to those regions. Also, our trade and our economic relations depend on trade with developing countries far more than any other developed country does. Most of our trade is with uh, developing countries. China, by far our biggest market, it's uh, uh, um, bigger than our next 10 export markets put together. Uh, and uh, if you look at Southeast Asia, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations as a group, uh, they'd be our uh, they'd be our second biggest market. Uh, India, very large and getting bigger, and uh, so China is becoming rich enough probably to be able to build uh, the the the, the ad adaptive uh, responses. Although China is very vulnerable to climate change itself, I'm more doubtful whether uh, Southeast and South Asia will be able to protect themselves in that way. So, very vulnerable both economically and. Uh, uh, and geopolitically from instability in Southeast and South Asia. So, uh, and a lot of our, um, our great uh, national uh, environmental assets, uh, the, the uh, unique uh, uh, barrier reefs, uh, uh, the Great Barrier Reef of Queensland, Ningaloo Reef of Western Australia, are vulnerable to relatively small amounts of additional warming. We're getting close to the limits now uh, where they will be severely damaged. The beautiful wetlands of northern Australia, Kakadu, the most famous of them, uh, are very liable to uh, saline inundation if you get much of an increase at all in uh, sea level rise. Uh, and uh, uh, other countries have, have vulnerabilities, uh, but it's hard to think of others that have such wonderful... Uh, uh, national assets uh, uh, so uh, precariously placed in relation to climate change. So taking all of those things together, uh, Australia is the most uh, vulnerable of the developed countries. We're already getting close to the point where damage is very severe well we're already uh, suffering severe damage a reminder of that again this summer with the flooding in across uh, a very wide range of places in australia um, we were reminded um, of it a few years ago with the bushfires across much of australia um, but uh, we're close to points where that could get much worse um, certainly global warming above two degrees uh, would be devastating for Australia, above 1.5 serious. We're already at over 1.1, so it's getting very close to very dangerous points. And uh, 
uh, pretty obvious once people think about it and take seriously the scientific evidence that Australia has a huge interest in avoiding that downside. Absolutely. Um, so we've had a change in, in, in government and in May 2022, uh, the Albanese government stepped in and, and even Anthony Albanese has talked about this idea of Australia becoming a superpower. Uh, but events of 2022, and, and today we're recording in 2023, just at the beginning of, um, we also saw in 2022 other uh, geopolitical developments like the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and the associated increase in uh, oil and gas prices around the world. What, what are these, you know, what's the shift in government uh, in Australia, but also these uh, geopolitical factors? Are they accelerating Australia's shift towards the renewable economy? Or is there a further awakening on, on a political level or even on a consumer level that renewables are, are the way to go? Uh, certainly the uh, shift in uh, the Commonwealth Government of Australia, the defeat of the Morrison Government, is a, a, a very big shift uh, facilitating effective action uh, to make use of the new opportunities. The, uh, the, the, the old uh, Liberal uh, uh, National Party Coalition Government uh, uh, w was in practice uh, resistant to recognising the realities in practice uh, uh, blind both to the realities of the potential damage from climate change and blind to the opportunity. So the change of government was very important. It's not that the new government came in committed to uh, uh, exceptionally strong action by uh, global standards, but it, it took Australia back into the mainstream uh, uh, probably on the policies that went to the election, probably still a bit behind the, 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 the average, but, uh, but, it, but, but it took us back to the mainstream, and that was a huge uh, shift. And given our advantages in the zero emissions economy, just, just being part of the general swim uh, gives, places you in a, in a uh, good, good position. It was a big change. And in, in, in office, the government has quickly implemented uh, the policies on climate change on which it was uh, elected uh, and uh, uh, continued to emphasise uh, uh, appreciation of, of the superpower opportunity. The Prime Minister uh, mentioned that as one, one of his main objectives on the night of his election uh, back in May last year. Uh, the election was important beyond the change of government. It swept from office uh, conservative uh, representatives in all of the big cities uh, 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 who were in electorates that have voted conservative in the whole of Australian history. Uh, uh, the richest suburban areas of Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Perth, uh, that had never voted uh, uh, anything other than Liberal National Party or Liberal Party before. They're, in Australia, they're the Conservative parties, uh, tossed out the incumbent members. And uh, in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, uh, voted in uh, um, uh, candidates uh, who, by social background and uh, inclination, probably were natural supporters uh, supporters of the old Liberal Party, but uh, uh, couldn't stomach uh, uh, 
the the Morrison government's uh, attitude to climate change, among some other issues, the other big issues, integrity in government and gender issues, but uh, climate was a huge one. And uh, anyone looking at that result can see that if the Conservative parties want to return to government, uh, they will have to recapture what used to be their heartland, and that has to reject climate denial because uh, that's clearly unacceptable uh, uh, to uh, those electorates which are essential parts of uh, the base of any conservative government. So that's the second, it wasn't just the change of government to a Labor government uh, uh, that uh, was ready to bring Australia back to the mainstream. It, It was a wider political message in that election that shows that a change back to old old uh, positions is necessary if Conservative parties are, are to rule again. The Ukraine issues, of course, are, are different. Uh, the Russian uh, in, invasion of Ukraine, tragic in itself, uh, uh, severely disrupted uh, global energy markets uh, and uh, led to much higher prices for coal and gas and oil, and that greatly increased the profitability of uh, the old industries in Australia. And uh, many people have used that as an opportunity to to argue that these industries are so important that we should do everything we can to extend their life and to uh, uh, slow down the transmission. Uh, I don't think that that uh, has been hugely influential uh, in the general Australian discussion, but um, but certainly those arguments are present. More importantly... Uh, is where the, what what effect it's had in the global discussion. Uh, uh, certainly, when uh, uh, gas and uh, uh, coal uh, became scarce in Europe, uh, uh, many people in Europe uh, began to wonder whether uh, quick uh, access to new sources of supply and commitments to long term. Uh, purchase of new sources of supply of uh, coal and gas and oil would give them more energy security. So there was a big debate for a little while in those urgent circumstances in the first half of last year. But my reading of it is that on the whole, that taught Europe that it needs to accelerate the movement to uh, zero emissions. And uh, it's it's concentrated the minds of many Europeans... um, for example, in Germany, on the difficulties of meeting all of their energy needs from renewable energy at home and the advantages of cooperation with a country like Australia that can meet many of their needs at much lower cost. So my current assessment, and this is a really difficult and tragic situation with dimensions way beyond energy, of course, but my current uh, assessment on energy is that on balance it's accelerated the pressures for transition. Mm. Now, I'm I'm in one of those electorates uh, in, in Sydney and... Uh, um, certainly you, you, you felt the uh, the energy shift uh, amongst people backing a, a teal independent here in Dr. Sophie Scomps on, on the northern beaches. Um, but but si- similarly to, to that idea, um, 
and you're talking about the renewable transition and the acceleration. Um, on a on a personal note, my my wife often uh, uh, tells me about her dream of having a north facing property uh, where um, you know so solar uh, installations would make a lot of sense. And she says, you know, at the moment we're southeast facing, looking back uh, from from Newport down towards Manly and, and and across the northern beaches, and it's it's a southeast facing house. And so I had to do some research on this in terms of solar um, installations and um, you mentioned Germany a little while ago and uh, some of the research I came across said that uh, in Australia if you're south facing so away, away from uh, it's not the most ideal position in terms of capturing sun rays is still four times as um, as uh, efficient in terms of gathering the solar energy as being south facing in in germany uh, which of course has a, a huge installation base as well and in terms of solar so uh, we are in a sunburned country and, and a sunlit country we are in many ways already solar powered uh, in terms of our you know agricultural system etc so huge opportunities for the future and perhaps this is you know given we're entering the sort of um, end zone here, Ross. I, I wanted to just check, in your perspective, if you if you think about both, you know, small enterprise and entrepreneurs and businesses, um, as well as large uh, companies. I mean, to avoid becoming stranded assets um, and to fully embrace the opportunities of the uh, decarbonized future. What what are some practical things that we can do either on a business level or even on an individual household level uh, to embrace some of the opportunities, but also avoid some of the risks associated with uh, with climate change? Well, the Australian advantage is so large, Anders, that... Uh, that uh uh, the many Australian businesses and households that could actually lower their costs and uh, do better economically now just by accelerating the transition. Australia is the natural home of the electric car. Uh, we 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 got an electric vehicle a, a, a few months ago. Uh, we can for driving around Melbourne. Uh, we we easily fill it. Uh, keep it filled with the surplus solar from our roof uh, during the daytime. If you go on a long trip, of course, you, you, you need to plug in along the way, uh, but uh, uh, and that can be done with, at low cost with renewable energy and will become more and more efficient at that. But in the big cities of Australia, and Australia is the most urbanised country on earth, has been for 150 years, uh, opportunities for a standalone house to meet all of its house requirements and and its uh, uh, metropolitan energy requirements just from the solar off the roof uh, it, it has huge economic advantages. That will be, that's already recognised by many Australians. It's been held back by the failure of government policies to recognise the, uh, the the opportunity in the past, and we're, we're correcting that now. Uh, of all the developed countries, we had the lowest uptake of EVs uh, in 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 the world. Uh, 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 well, we have up till now, uh, but that will change very quickly. The natural advantages will will drive the change uh, as soon as government policy ceases to be. Uh, antipathetic to, uh, uh, to, to, to the change. For business, it's always hard for established businesses have done very well from an old model to, uh, uh, to, to, to move to a new one. For that reason, really, in, when there's big structural change that 
uh, increases uh, efficiency for the economy as a whole. It's, it's very unusual for that to be led by incumbents. When I was young, uh, and you were very young, uh, the, the one company, uh, IBM, had most of the world's computer market and employed most of the world's most capable uh, um, computing engineers, electrical engineers. Uh, if you'd said then, in two generations' time, every uh, household's going to have a, uh, a computer on a desk, uh, which companies are going to do well? Well, without thinking, we would have all said, well, IBM will do that. But five different sets of kids in garages uh, uh, outcompeted them, created the new economy, and now each of them is worth much more than IBM. Uh, very hard for incumbents to drive innovation. It means su such a change in mindset. And so we see great companies like Woodside and Santos inventing reasons for going slowly rather than use, from using their skills and management capacities to uh, lead the new uh, that's sad and uh, does risk stranded assets. Uh, sad, but that's that's one of the great virtues of capitalism, that uh, it can uh, uh, destroy constructively uh, companies and assets uh, that are not adjusting to economic change. And so uh, uh, established, the message for established industries is uh, give some thought to what you will lose uh, if you're not part of building the future, not at the forefront of that. If you, um, Those big established fossil energy companies could make a lot of money now just by enjoying the high prices, uh, giving that back to their shareholders as dividends or, uh, uh, or um, share buybacks. Uh, just letting their uh, shareholders benefit from the high prices without wasting resources, investing in new capacity uh, that runs the risk of being stranded. So for the established industries, so important for Australia, so important for the past and for the present, uh, it would be great if uh, they looked after their shareholders' interests by enjoying the, the high pr uh, profits of the present by giving money back to their shareholders rather than wasting it by investing it in assets that uh, uh, won't have as good a future as uh, current prices suggest they might have. Yeah, and I think um, being mindful of time, I think there's something to learn from the Norwegian experiment, which is that you don't have to be perfect necessarily, but you do need to get started and even while they're enjoying uh, you know, legacy incomes from oil and gas exploration, they are fully investing it into a, a renewable future where, you know, 97% of of energy in households in, in Norway, at least, uh, yes, they're exporting some of these uh, fossil fuels elsewhere, but 97% of um, household energy comes from renewables uh, already. So I think that approach, even as a mindset, is, is quite important. Yes, there are old school revenues, but make sure that we invest them in, in into a sustainable future where the rise of the you know the conscious consumer, the conscious investor, stakeholders and, and, and talent won't want to touch your company uh, unless uh, your supply chain and uh, unless your energies are uh, sourced in renewable fashion. Um, Ross Garneau, it's been great to have you on, on the second renaissance. Um, 
Thank you uh, for uh, for setting such a good stage and, and, and finally also seeing that there's some political will to, to back some of the great ideas that you've been espousing for, for, for decades. So thank you for being on the Second Renaissance today. Nice to talk to you, Anderson. Your international readers can get the book, The Superpower Transformation, uh, uh, online uh, from the publishers, uh, Black Ink, if, if they... Uh, and Australians, of course, can go down to the local bookstore. Yeah, yeah and I've uh, been picking these up with my uh, with my very localized Avalon bookstore at Bucacino. Uh, so I've ordered them through the bookstore, which of course you can do. You can get them on Amazon or maybe even get your local bookstore to, to order them. And I'm a big, big fan of both the books. So uh, there's plenty more to check out as well. Ross, great to have you on the show. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.